It is, uh, it's a great pleasure to be back here at uh, Faith, standing uh, here on this, uh, this platform at this pulpit. Uh, many of you, of course, are very good friends. Some of you uh, are not. Some of you have uh, come to attend here at Faith in the last uh, four years since uh, we have been gone. And to you, I can only say that you've come to a very special place. Uh, this was a place that welcomed uh, Stacy and I when we had newborn twins 14 years ago. And we were welcomed here with, with gladness. This was the place that gave me an opportunity to test my gifts in ministry, bringing me on staff, unordained and without a seminary degree, and helping me through the transition from the corporate world to full-time ministry. And it was the place that four years ago sent us in love to New Jersey so that I could be a part of helping a church there transition from a long-tenured much-loved senior pastor to its next season of ministry. That was something that I learned about here, something that I hoped could be a part of what was Calvary's story in New Jersey because I had seen it done so graciously and so well here at Faith 10 years ago this summer when Pastor Brown retired from full-time ministry and Pastor Kozlowski became the senior pastor. And I got to watch from the inside during that transition on the pastoral staff how to do that well and by God's grace it not only went well here at faith but I believe it's going well at Calvary now let's turn to our let's turn to our text pastor Mike is extremely well organized I received very clear instructions as to my time allocation Um, I take that to have only been intended for the first service where there's Sunday school and I'm just going to preach as long as I feel like for the second service because no um I want to read from Jeremiah chapter 33 verses 14 to 26. I think it's 16. It's probably a typo on my part when I sent them the text. Um, It's uh, 14 to to 26. If you don't have a Bible with you and you want to follow along, there's uh, Bibles in the pew racks in front of me, and Jeremiah 33 is on page 787. Now, let me just set it up because, you know, whenever a guest preacher comes, they sort of dive into the middle of a text somewhere in the Bible, and it's not a part of a series necessarily. So let me just give you a little bit of orientation. Jeremiah is in the Old Testament, right? But a little bit past halfway in your Bibles. It's the second book in the section uh, that is commonly referred to as the major prophets. Isaiah is the first. Now, the major prophets are not called the major prophets because they're more important than all the other prophets, but because the books are a little bit longer, and so they're the major prophets in contrast to the minor prophets, and Jeremiah is the second one of those. Now, Jeremiah was a prophet in the kingdom of Judah, the southern uh, kingdom of the two kingdoms of Israel after they split, after the reign of Solomon. And Israel, years before the northern kingdom, had been taken into exile, essentially ceasing to exist as a nation. But Judah held on. And Judah, Jeremiah was a prophet in that kingdom, and not a particular popular one at that, because Jeremiah had this problem. He was prone to tell the truth, and the people of the day didn't like the truth that he was telling. And so the elites, particularly of his day, were frequently angry at him. So he was out of favor for proclaiming the truth of God's word. And when we find him here in chapter 3, he's in prison uh, because speaking the truth had gotten him into a little bit of trouble. And on top of that, it's a terrible time in the history of God's people. Absolutely awful. We're probably only months away here from the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonian Empire and, you know, somewhere in that 588 to 587 B.C. kind of period. These are trying times. And the word of God is extremely unpopular. Does that sound at all relevant to you? Right? Trying times and the word of God is extremely unpopular. That's the context 
for the words of Jeremiah here. So let me, let me read this and invite you to follow along as I do. Jeremiah chapter 33, starting at verse 14. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the gracious promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. For this is what the Lord says, David will never fail to have a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, nor will the priests who are Levites ever fail to have a man to stand before me continually to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to present sacrifices. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night no longer come at their appointed time, then my covenant with David my servant and my covenant with the Levites who are priests ministering before me can be broken. And David will no longer have a descendant to reign on his throne. I will make the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister before me as countless as the stars of the sky, and as measureless as the sand on the seashore. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not noticed that these people are saying, the Lord has rejected the two kingdoms he chose? So they despise my people and no longer regard them as a nation. This is what the Lord says. If I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed laws of heaven and earth, then I will reject the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, and will not choose one of his sons to rule over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and have compassion on them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what it speaks to us and the hope that it offers. Pray, Lord, that as we listen to it explained and taught, that you would use my words to encourage where appropriate and where needed, to strengthen where needed, to convict where needed, and do it perfectly in a way that I cannot. You know these people. You know them far better than I do, even the ones that I know. And you know exactly what they need. And so I pray that you would do that with your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, our church, and when I say our church, I mean not faith church specifically, but our church tradition, the Presbyterian church, the church of which we're a part, the broader historical tradition, places at the center of its worship what we sometimes refer to as word and sacrament. We are a church which puts word and sacrament, the preaching of God's word and the celebration of the sacraments at the center of what we do. Today, in a little bit, we're going to celebrate the, celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And Pastor Mike will explain a little bit about what that means and the significance of it and why it's important for us to take that seriously. I'm also struck, the Lord's Supper being one sacrament, but I'm also struck that the very last time that I was here in this building, standing up here preaching, I was also that very same day officiating a baptism. Baptism for a little boy is now four years old and has himself a couple of siblings. And so we stand in the midst of the preaching of God's word and the celebration of God's sacraments. And it's an interesting image to have in mind as we look at this text because this is one of those passages that's often quoted that point to the arrival of Jesus, a baby born in a time of struggle and a time of uncertainty. And these are words that are spoken by God, as we've said, through Jeremiah at a time in Israel's history that was a time of extreme struggle and a time of extreme 
uncertainty. Now, I'm not going to go line by line through this text. That would be a profitable exercise, but that's not what I have as my goal this morning. I want to just offer a couple of thoughts that will hopefully serve as an encouragement to us, to us who see ourselves at times in that same position of living in times of extreme anxiety and uncertainty. And I want to see if we can set up for us appropriately the celebration, the significance, the power of the celebration of the Lord's Supper that we will be doing in just a few minutes. That's the goal. Let me do that by starting, um, by going back to a book that I read just a, a couple of years ago. It's a book that was written in 2017. It's a novel, in fact, a fiction work, relatively rare for me, but a fiction work called Stephen Kier- by Stephen Kiernan called The Baker's Secret. And it's about a small French town on the coast of Normandy during the Second World War and the Nazi occupation of France. Now, like I said, I don't read fiction very often, but the book was fascinating to me, maybe because I had the opportunity to visit with my grandfather about 20 years ago, a little over 20 years ago, uh, the beaches of Normandy, and see that very place and walk in those, same very ten- those very same towns. Maybe because I appreciate and, and enjoy reading about s- stories of people who maintain hope and maintain courage in extremely challenging times. But the story centers around a young French woman named Emma who had apprenticed for a number of years since she was 13 in the shop of a master baker in France. And the German commandant, when he comes into town, is so captivated by Emma's bread, she breaks amazing bread, that she is given extra rations of flour every day for her to bake a dozen loaves of bread for the commandant and for his staff. Every day they arrive with the flour, and every afternoon she is to deliver 12 loaves of bread. It's particularly infuriating for Emma to do this because as the town slowly starves, she is helping the German officers to eat well. So she does what she can. She mixes into the flour just a small amount of ground straw, only a little so that it isn't noticed by the taste, but it allows her to stretch the batch and give her two extra loaves every day which she then distributes at great risk to herself to the people that she deems most in need of a little bit extra sustenance in the town. And starting with that bread distribution, it ultimately develops into a system of underground barter and trade that Emma coordinates, all with the aim of helping her village to survive the occupation. Now, interesting story you say. Here's where I find this relevant for us this morning. As I come back here and I stand and I think of a baptism the last time I was here, as I think of this being the place where all five of my children were baptized themselves. This is where I think this is relevant. Emma, for all of her resourcefulness, for all of her scrappiness, she's a cynic. And one day, the spring of 1944, she's deep into the occupation, and the conditions in the village are at their absolute worst. And she visits the home of a young man and his wife. He had been a professor in his pre-war days. They hadn't had any children up to this point. And she enters into the house. She sees the young woman of the house sitting in a chair, nursing in her arms and wrapped in a blanket, a brand new baby girl, just two hours old. And the father is absolutely glowing and insists that Emma hold his new daughter. And he says, isn't she beautiful? And she is, of course. But all Emma can think is, what were they thinking? 
to bring a child into a time of war, what did they imagine her life would be like? It's an interesting question, isn't it? It's a very relevant question, actually. Just think about the world around us. Why bring a child into this world when on so many measures it seems a very difficult time to raise a child? And this is not just a question for fictional novels about World War II. You hear this question all the time. You hear this sentiment all the time. People question about whether or not it's a good time to bring a child into the world, a world like ours. And you hear it from all sides. All right, for example, on one side, a, a story that I read just about a year ago. Jessica Combs, a 39-year-old English teacher, she told CNBC in an interview, she said, I refuse to bring a child into the burning hellscape that we call a planet. That's what she said. She said she's always been unsure. She had always been unsure about having a, a child of her own, but she says, now, as I look at the, the state of the economy, the shoddy global health care and climate change, she said, I feel that all my trepidation is well justified. Same fears. There's another guy interviewed in the article. His name was, was Tom James, 39-year-old, managing partner of a public relations firm. And he's quoted in the article. It tells CNBC, I had a major depressive episode last year based on the existential angst over the world my children will be growing up in. That's one side of the spectrum. Now, go to the other side of the spectrum, right? Maybe the more conservative side. Maybe the side that some of you maybe relate a little bit more to. Well, perhaps for different reasons than Mr. James, that feeling, that angst can be equally true for parents on the conservative side too. All right, different set of concerns maybe, but, 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 but often talk in the very same ways that, that betray that underneath it, underneath maybe a brave exterior is the same existential angst. The reasons are just different. Now you talk about like, oh, I just fear for a world where the government seems more and more encroaching on the rights of individuals. Fear more and more about a slide into moral relativism and the, 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 the morality of the age. A concern about physical safety in, a, in an age where violence seems to be more and more prevalent. Right? So you've got different reasons, but it sounds and seems as if everyone can look at the, the world around us and make a case for anxiety about the world in which we live, an existential angst over the world my children will be growing up in. And that's an interesting phrase to use, isn't it? Existential angst. If you haven't heard that word, that's my gift to you this morning, is a cool word like that that you can use with all your friends tomorrow to impress them how smart you are. Use the word existential and they'll be amazed. It's not actually a hard word to figure out because what it means is found in the, in the word, right? An existential threat it's not just a threat to one's happiness, their comfort. Right, that's a threat. But an existential threat is a threat to one's very existence. See, that's in the word. A threat to one's being. Now, return to our text in Jeremiah 33. Finally, some of you are saying, return to the text. Right? If there's ever a moment when there was existential angst for the people of God, where, where you might have said, okay, I guess it was warranted here. It was here. Right, the siege of Jerusalem, 589 to 587 B.C. Jerusalem had already been under the thumb of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar had installed for a little while uh, this guy named Zedekiah as a tributary king, a puppet king. You know, kind of like the Vichy French leadership during World War II. The, Ger the Germans had installed under Marshal Philippe Pétain. Right, you be in charge, but not really in charge because I'm really in charge. That was Zedekiah. He was a puppet under the control of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Zedekiah made a mistake, though. He said he had, had enough of this. 
he tried to make a treaty with Egypt behind Nebuchadnezzar's back. Now, Nebuchadnezzar did not like that too well. And so Nebuchadnezzar was now coming to crush Jerusalem. And it was terrible. Right, the Babylonian army laid siege to the city for over two years, basically starved it to death. And it's never pleasant to suffer. But suffering without hope, suffering without meaning, suffering about whether you're, the, your very existence as a people, not just your personal existence, but your very existence as a people, when that's in question, that's when it becomes real existential angst. And that's what God's people would have felt at that moment. There's no doubt about it because their, their being, their future, their identity as a people, they were all being threatened. Think about this. Just from a pure political standpoint, the monarchy at this point, completely done. I mean, it had been sort of done for a little while and Zedekiah, like I said, was just a puppet king. But at least you could kind of pretend like, yeah, we still got a king. But now it's completely over. No more kings on the physical throne of David. The nation would never rule itself again. And with the destruction of the temple... The sacrifices, according to the law of Moses, they would no longer be offered either. Now, they would be reinstituted years later, but the people, they wouldn't have known that at the time. And if the sacrifices can't be offered, then how is sin atoned for? What happens to our sin? And all of this would have called into significant question for them the very character of God. Can we really trust God? Because his promises, I thought he made promises. Didn't he make promises, they would have said to each other? The promise seems to be over. That's what they would have thought. And of course, the most spiritually aware of the Israelites would have recognized that the suffering that they were experiencing in very large part was due to their own sin and rebellion. This was God's judgment upon Judah that they were experiencing. And they would have said, we've blown it now. God's done with us. This is obviously it for the promise. And who would want to bring a child into a world like that. Which makes Jeremiah's words all the more amazing, somewhat perplexing, but all the more amazing, spoken from the dungeon on the eve of Jerusalem's destruction. Because Jeremiah does two things. First, he reiterates the promise that God had made. He says it again. And second, he maintains that it is a promise that God is certain to keep. He doesn't just tell them what God had said in the past. I mean, that would have been good. But if God didn't intend to keep it, it would have almost been just like rubbing it in. Yeah, remember how God said this? Yeah, not anymore. No. He reminds them of the promise, and then he tells them that it's a promise that he's certain to keep. So now first, let's look at the promise that he reminds them of. Verses 14 to 17, right? You see the promise being made. A reiteration of the promise that had been made to David. Now this takes you back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We don't have time to turn back and look in detail at 2 Samuel chapter 7, but that's what's going on here. That's where David had said to God, hey God, I want to build you a house. I want to build you a temple. I think this is a good idea. I've been thinking about this. I think it'd be, it's time for you to have a house too. I'm going to build you a house. And God comes back and says, you know what, David, no. no I, it's, it's a fine idea. Thanks very much. But you know what? In fact, actually, this is what's going to happen. You're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. Now, he's not talking about when God says, I'm going to build you a house, David. He's not talking about a physical house. He's talking about a dynasty, the house of David. That's what he's going to build. And then you come to verse 17 in Jeremiah 33. And you see it popping up again. David shall never fail to have a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Wow. 
things as bleak as they are. <laughs> and God's not hedging at all. Right? He's, he's not backing off the promise at all. Right? You'd almost kind of expect that. Is it like a little backpedaling? Yeah, I kind of said it. I mean, that's what the, that's what the leaders would do today. It's like, well, yeah, I kind of said it, but you know, circumstances have changed. Things are a little bit... He doesn't back off it at all. God is doubling down. Now, things look, still look pretty bleak, right? Yeah, they are. But the Lord says there's coming a time, verse 14, there's coming a time, the days are coming, when I'm going to do what I told you I said I was going to do. And a righteous branch, which means the Messiah, a righteous branch is going to come from David. And this Messiah is going to right all of the injustices that have been done, and he's going to save his people. And his name will be called, it says, the Lord our righteousness, which is just another messianic title that Jeremiah has already used back in 23, chapter 23. That's the promise. The king, the king from David, that king, that house, he's still coming. And once again, right, this is a fairly bold promise. We're just literally like counting days until the end of the kingly line in Jerusalem. If there wasn't some confidence in this, it would be a pretty almost insulting, insensitive thing to say to these people about to be destroyed if it were a false promise that was being reiterated. But Jeremiah doesn't leave it there. God, through Jeremiah, goes on to relay how he is planning to guarantee that that promise is going to be kept. Watch how he does this. Jeremiah shows how God will guarantee the promise by making a comparison to the faithfulness that God shows in maintaining his creation. Look at verse 20. It says, he says, look, basically, I mean, I'm summarizing here. Look, look, if my agreement with the day and the night to happen on schedule every day, you know, we've kind of made a deal, me, the day and the night, like it's got a day, you happen during the day, night, you happen at night, you get light, you get dark. If, that, if my kind of agreement, if my covenant with the creation continues to be binding, then my covenant with David stands as well. It's that certain. And then he comes back to it in verse 25 and 26. And he says, the only way that I would reject the promise of bringing an offspring Messiah from Jacob and David, the only way that I would reject that promise is if I, haven't, if I hadn't established my covenant with day and night and the fixed order of heaven. It's that sure. And he's saying that because that covenant stands, because that promise will surely be kept, then the promise with David stands too. And what God is doing here in a very short concentration of verses is he's bringing together a number of different strands, multiple strands from the history of his dealings with his people to show them that he is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God, to demonstrate that he is a God of covenants. See, the reference that he makes to his covenant with the day and his covenant with the night, right? it, 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 it kind of sounds silly when I kind of say, like, okay, day you do this and night you do this. But God had made a covenant with Noah, remember, about creation. Back in Genesis chapter 9, after the flood, God goes to Noah and says, I'm never going to flood the earth again. And then the rhythm of creation is going to be maintained. And it would have brought that to mind. Yeah, that's a sure, that's a sure promise he's made to continue to, to be Lord over all creation. And of course, 
God made that promise to Noah. To, to Noah, he gave him a sign. He gave him a physical sign. He gave him the rainbow in the sky and said, look, there you go. There's, that's how you know. Now, the other thing that God does through Jeremiah here, verse 26, he, by referencing that the Messiah, the righteous branch, is not only an offspring of David, but that he's also an offspring of Jacob, right? We get the connection and the reference to the covenant that had been made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promise that a descendant from this family, from this line, would be a blessing to all the nations. And of course, God gave Abraham a sign too, didn't he? The sign of circumcision. The sign that we see fulfilled in Christ and we celebrate as baptism that I'm reminded of when I stand here today. Now, maybe the most interesting thing in this passage, though, is that the promise that God intends to keep is not just a promise about a Davidic king, but it is a promise about a Levitical priest. Not just a king from the line of Judah, but a priest in the order of Levi. And back to the promise in verse 17, right? You see, David will never fail to have a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Okay, we've been talking about that. Fair enough, a king. It's going to happen. Going to have an eternal king. He's going to come. A Messiah is going to come. And then verse 18, nor will the priests who are Levites ever fail to have a man to stand before me continually to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to present sacrifices. And like I said a minute ago, to the spiritually aware, this would have been a very big deal. This would have been very important. We tend to think today, even today, that a good king is really what we need. And we don't need less than a king, but we tend to, we tend to default in that direction. What we need is a political ruler. Right, we need a king. That's what we need. But see, Israel had existed for centuries before the monarchy was established. What was there from the very beginning, though? What was established at the very formation of the nation of Israel when the, when the laws of Moses were given? The offerings, the system of sacrifice, the Levites, offering sacrifices for the sins of the people, first in the tabernacle and then in the, in the temple. But see, that was about to end now. I mean, we're at the end of that, or so they would have thought at the time. And so now would they not only not have a king, but they're not going to have a priest and if they don't have a priest then they're not going to have a sacrifice but here is a promise on the eve of the destruction of jerusalem at a moment of extreme existential angst where god says that not only is there a messiah coming who will be an eternal king but there is a messiah coming who will be an eternal priest and this covenant of sacrifice this is what we see most clearly when we celebrate here the Lord's table, right, that we're about to share together. See, remember, when Jesus ate the Passover meal with his disciples on that night of his arrest, on the night that he was betrayed, there's no reference to there being at that meal a Passover lamb, which would have been traditional at Passover. And that's because that Passover lamb was standing right there in front of them. He was the Lamb of God, the promised Messiah in the line of David, born to Mary to be the eternal king, but named Jesus because he was going to save his people from their sins. And how was he going to do that? He was going to do that by being their eternal priest, by standing before the throne of God and offering himself 
as the ultimate sacrifice. You see, what we need, what we very much need, what we desperately need in this world, in this world of chaos, in this world of uncertainty, in this world of existential angst, what we need most of all is a baby to be born into it. And he has been. I, I, I talked to some of the children in the first service, and this is what I said. Here, there's fewer children, minor here, but, but maybe just as important for adults to hear. This is what you need to remember. Don't ever look into the eyes of a child and say, I'm so sorry for the world that you live in. I'm so sorry because it's going to be a rough go. And that may be true in many respects. But give them a higher vision than that. Please give them a higher vision than that. In the novel that I was telling everyone about, Emma, the young baker, who visited that house with a newborn baby. She was given the baby to hold. And remember, she's there holding this newborn baby and she's wondering why these parents would bring this child into this world, why they could see in any way that this was something that was beautiful. And the girl's father said to Emma, you know, her name is Gabrielle. And Emma asked, why? Is, this a, is it a family name? She's just trying to make conversation. Is it a family name? Was she named after someone? And the father replied, no, mademoiselle. No, no. She's named after the archangel Gabriel because she will be the one who tells our story. Gabriel, he says, was God's messenger who delivered news of salvation. Long after you and I are gone, he tells Emma, long after you and I are gone, the child who was born into this world will be our messenger to the future. She will describe how it was in this time and this place and how we survived till the Allies came. Don't ever tell children that you're sorry they're born to this moment. They were born to this moment for a purpose. To every child here in this church that you minister to, that is why they are here. Listen to me very carefully. Long after you and I are gone, they will be our messengers to the future. They will carry the news of an unbreakable covenant promise to a generation yet unborn. They will take the promise that is signified in the waters of baptism and in the celebration of the Lord's Supper and they will proclaim that hope. And it will not be a story of human will and human survival. It will be the story of a sacrificial rescue accomplished by Jesus. The one who is signified in his sacrifice by the bread and the cup that we'll share together in a minute. In the novel, at the end of the day, on June 6th, 1944. Emma is physically and emotionally broken. She's out of hope. She's done. But a young man in the town, a young man that they call Monkey Boy because he was really good at climbing trees. Monkey Boy comes to her and begs her to come with her and climb a tree that overlooks the bluff of the Normandy beaches. And she reluctantly agrees to go. Now, Monkey Boy is mentally handicapped, but he's one of the noblest characters in the, in the story. And despite his handicap, actually probably because of his handicap, he is able to see profound truth before anyone else can. And Monkey Boy and Emma get high into the limb of this tree, and they both look out onto the beach, and they see the same absolutely horrific sight. The carnage and the destruction 
strewn over all the beaches. Destroyed ships in the water, jeeps and tanks and trucks in the sand, and the bodies. The book says, more than anything, Emma saw the bodies. They lay in all sorts of positions, clustered at the waterline, and here and there, over the beach, and none of them were moving. All the death. Now, Emma's still a cynic. And for a moment, she's absolutely overwhelmed. And then she turns, and she looks at Monkey Boy. And Monkey Boy has this big, giant smile on his face. And she looks at him, and she says, What in the world can you be smiling about? Look at this. Don't you see all of this? And that's when Monkey Boy opened up both of his arms and looked at the beaches, and he said, For us? It says Emma looked again. The dead outnumbered the population of her village. They outnumbered all the people she had ever seen in her life. And yet they kept coming. And they would keep dying. And it absolutely amazed her. This is what the book says. There was nothing for them to gain. Emma suffered daily for friends and for neighbors. But they were doing it for strangers throwing themselves on that dark beach, slaughtered till the sea ran dark, and yet another wave came and was slaughtered, and another, whole cities of men. They had never met Emma, she would never meet them, and still another wave. It was so humbling. Emma clung to the tree and did not think she could continue to breathe. The weight of their sacrifice might crush her. Here they had died, and up the beach they were still dying in flocks and willingly for the idea that she, Emma herself, and her friends and her family and her neighbors ought to live in freedom. Who on earth deserves such a gift? She turned to Monkey Boy, tears in her eyes, and she nodded, and she said, for us. Every time we come to this table, the tears should run down our face as we consider the weight of the sacrifice that was necessary for God to keep his promise. The cost in a body given for us. The cost in his blood spilled for us. Who on earth deserves such a gift not us and yet it has been given to keep a promise let's pray father thank you for the promises that you have made to us promises that you have intended from the very beginning of time to keep promises that you have kept in the person of jesus and the faithfulness to your people Promise is still outstanding that we can have every certainty of believing will indeed come to pass because they are based on your character. They are based on your covenant. They are based on the promise that you made, promises made, and promises kept. We thank you for them in Jesus' name. Amen.